Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you here with us for episode 43. Now, before we get too far into this episode, Dan, I'd like to make an open-ended apology to all of our listeners, but especially to those listeners with taste, for not even mentioning (laughs) that our last episode was episode 42, as Douglas Adams so kindly pointed out was the answer to life, the universe, and everything, just like our last episode was. Just right. right. Apparently, the meaning goes much deeper than the very narrow focus we had for it. (laughs) And if you just meditate on it long enough, you'll get there. I'm sure you will solve everything you need in life. Exactly. Of course, as, as Douglas Adams points out, you need an even better computer to calculate the right question that the 42 is the answer to. So, and I'm not convinced that any of our listeners are that intelligent. So, <laughs> or that stupid. Anyways, <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> but that brings us back to this episode. We are going to talk about the COVID 19 vaccine, which has been big news lately ever since the CDC recommended that changed, well, I should say they changed their recommendations in regards to safe COVID-19 policy, in particular regarding the vaccine, changing it so that if you have the vaccine, you are able to go about not wearing a mask and not social distancing, both inside and outside. And that sparked a lot of debate on both sides of the issue and sparked a lot of people freaking out in different ways about what that actually means as we get this much closer, as we return to some version of normal. What's the most interesting thing, at least for me, in terms of of the CDC's recommendation, is the recommendation makes so much sense, right? The vaccine the CDC has demonstrated to be effective against covid Therefore, if you have the vaccine, COVID is less of a threat to you. Therefore, if you're vaccinated, doing those things that mitigate COVID become less important. Therefore, mask wearing, social distancing aren't a priority if you're vaccinated, right? That all follows. That all that all makes sense. <laughs> yes, that seemed supremely reasonable as you described it. We got a, we got a clear logical chain. But it doesn't make sense in terms of policy because how do you how do you enact that you know for the longest time businesses have required that you wear masks for a long time states and cities have required that you wear masks that's easy that's easy to enforce if you're in our city you have to wear a mask if you're in Walmart you have to wear a mask if they're not wearing a mask you ask them to wear a mask or leave, right? That's not complicated. Requiring that they wear a mask if they're not vaccinated is complicated. That's not easy to do. And so what's the net effect? The net effect is that many areas and many businesses at least are simply getting rid of mask mandates under the guise of following CDC recommendations. Walmart, at least in my area, has already done this. Walmart got rid of their mask-required signs and replaced them with signs that are much smaller that state that if you have the vaccine, you don't need the mask, and if you don't have the vaccine, to please keep wearing a mask. And then they just let anyone come in regardless of what they're wearing, because there's no easy way for Walmart to ensure that you're vaccinated. There's no 
There's no way they can do that. There's no practical way for Walmart to do that. Right. The fact that the vaccine is effective, obviously, in lots of tons of people have had it, something like half the population, half of the adults, since a significant part of the population has had it, and obviously want to return to doing things that, you know, stop doing things that basically aren't aren't helping them in any significant way. But you could have also made this case that this should have been the policy for people who already got COVID. Mm -hmm. They had all the immunities that people with a vaccine have, and they were not going to be at risk in the same ways that others are. They're not going to spread it in the same way others are. They could have been exceptions to the rule. And the reason they didn't make them exceptions is, as you were saying, enforcing the rule at a practical level is difficult. And in the sense that if you think it's critical to have 100% compliance, that everybody who's had a vaccine or has been infected doesn't have to wear a mask, but everybody else absolutely has to for the safety and security of others, then you have an immediate problem in that you can't verify and you can't distinguish between those two groups on the fly. Walmart can't test, you know, take blood samples of everybody as they go in and confirm where they're at, nor is there some kind of official card that that verifies it for them, which people have thrown around for exactly this purpose, to solve this problem. Some kind of vaccination card uh, that proves that you've had it would in theory, solve this issue, at least for those who are vaccinated. Yeah, would would in theory, but in practice, would that be effective for Walmart greeters to be checking everyone's cards before they come in the door? <laughs> Papers, please. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it would look really bad and would also just be slower. You know, I mean, Walmart, I mean, everyone's been to Walmart. You know how many people are pushing through that door. It was hard enough <laughs> for them to say, hey, you know, make sure you're wearing that mask, you know, pull that over your mouth. But going from requiring a mask to checking everyone's papers is not a simple step. And that's assuming there are papers, which right now there aren't. You know, I guess you could require people to show their uh, their their doctor's papers. And then, of course, you get hit with a HIPAA violation. And no one wants that either. Right. I don't think Walmart wants to be responsible for that. And even if even in the best case scenario to then have the, the chance of a lawsuit from somebody who does get COVID and can claim that it's from Walmart and then have Walmart be forced to, you know, for having complied poorly or not done it effectively. There's just, yeah, you wouldn't want to assume that responsibility is a business. As you said, the mask mandate thing is easy. That's easy. And it doesn't claim more than it can do. It just claims I'm going to make them wear a mask. It doesn't claim it's going to save you from COVID, but this this other thing you could see lawsuits following and, and just lots of legal complications. And what's interesting about that, Dan, because of the lack of enforcement, is that what I'm seeing is is a lot of people who who were very pro-mask before are afraid of, even though they're vaccinated now, they're afraid of going through Walmart without wearing a mask because they don't want to look like an anti-masker. While the anti-maskers who may not even be vaccinated and usually aren't, because usually if you're anti-mask, you tend to be anti-vaccine, but not always. But a lot of these these groups share share. Uh, there's a lot of uh, overlap, Venn diagrams and all that. But anyways, are not wearing a mask regardless of whether or not they receive the vaccine. And then you've got people who have received the vaccine who are afraid to not wear a mask in order to not look like a Republican anti-masker. And the net result is, <laughs> is that in many cases, you will have a Walmart full of people and half of them are vaccinated and wearing masks 
and the other half are unvaccinated and not wearing masks. That's obviously an <laughs> oversimplification. But the fact that that sounds like it could happen is evidence of how politicized this issue has become. And it's not even about what makes sense anymore, right? It's just, it's right. weird. It's weird that that's where we're at right now. Right. We're not just, we're not just beyond the obvious fact that most people cannot read and understand the data and make decisions for themselves independent of their political party. But they're now reacting in ways that don't even pretend to be connected to fact, mm -hmm. <laughs> to fact just mm -hmm. in response to try and avoid labeling and different things. It's, it's, we're several levels beyond the ideal of people making decisions based on observable facts about the way the virus behaves. Which brings us to the fact that some people are taking the vaccine and some people are not. We've reached a, a bit of a tipping point in terms of vaccinations where at first there were a ton of vaccinations. It was it was difficult for people to get vaccinations. And as soon as they became available, they were snapped up. And as soon as your your age group or your conditions or whatever allowed you to get the vaccine, you would get it. And now in most areas of the United States, any adult can get the vaccine. I don't know of many areas in the United States where they don't have enough for every adult to get. There may be some areas few and far between, but for the most part, the majority of the United States, you can get a vaccine if you're an adult. And yet we've reached a uh, plateau, as it were, where people are simply not choosing to get the vaccine at least in larger numbers. You know, it's definitely slowed down. A large chunk of the United mm -hmm, States mm -hmm. have been vaccinated, but there's also a large chunk that is reticent to, and it's uh, become pretty polarized. You know, the, the groups yes. are, and the groups are getting more polarized. Right. In Dallas, in Dallas, as you, it was exactly as you described. You had an initial group where everybody in this group wanted to be vaccinated, and it was, how soon can I get it done? Mm -hmm. And so they're rapidly expanding their ability to administer doses and they're, you know, they're, they're organized to a level that's where you're making appointments many weeks in advance. Mm -hmm. And if you, you miss your appointment, you're, you're back to the back of the line or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And now, now it's like, if you'd like to show up at any time, we'd be happy to vaccinate you. Just walk in. Yeah. You no appointment necessary. Just please come. Yeah. You can walk into a Walmart or a Target or many other regular businesses and get a vaccine right there. And then. <laughs> Have you seen that? I, I, that's probably true here. I haven't seen that personally. I've seen that, that personally. But that makes sense. I've, yeah, I've been yeah. to both a, a Target and a Walmart that had signs saying, walk-ins welcome, here's the aisle you go to, you know, go get your vaccine. Because for Target, it's not even in a pharmacy. They're just over in an aisle. They've got a little, <laughs> little table set up ready to give you your vaccine. Right. I've seen that with flu shots. Uh, it makes sense that they would do that with COVID. But the point is, is they've reached definitely a saturation point where it's that yes. easy to get a vaccine that you can literally just walk into a, not even to a doctor's office, but into a grocery store and and get your vaccine for free and, and you're done. Yeah. And, and as you're saying, it's, it's not because 98% of the population is vaccinated and we're just getting the last few people who have been hiding under rocks. It's because there is a significant portion of the population who does not want to, at least currently, at least now in the immediate future, is not actively trying to get vaccinated. 
And for some people, that's unbelievable. That's uh, uh-huh. that's that's crazy. And I, I'd like to tell you that that the two sides have have differing views and and they respect each other's views and they have conversations <laughs> about about the pros and cons of the COVID nineteen vaccine and and why you should or shouldn't get it. But but that's not that's not where we're at right now. Where we're at is if you can I just point out as you're saying that, that when you use the word respect. There is literally one body I can think of in the entire U.S. political system where there are people with opposing opinions and they respect one another. And it's weirdly enough, the Supreme Court. And it's because the culture of the Supreme Court is such that you basically live with this person for 40 years or whatever it's going to be. <laughs> there's, there's kind of this acceptance that like, whatever else happens, we have to be able to work together. And so they actually do get to like each other and respect each other in a way that, and it may just be because they're old, right? <laughs> that, they're, that there's a different culture there, but they actually have a mutual respect. So anyway, I just throw that out there because you said the word respect. And I know as soon as someone says two sides respect each other, that it's, that it's sarcasm, right? That this is a joke. <laughs> and it's so sad that 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 that's all it takes mm-hmm. to tell that this is sarcasm. <laughs> like there's there's mutual respect. Good one, Brad. Good one. No, and 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 so let me talk a little bit about these two sides. So first of all, you've got the the pro vaccine side, the one the, the the group of people who got the vaccine as soon as possible, who are very concerned about COVID, and who are now wearing masks in public. Because they don't want to be in any way associated with anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers. They're the people who say, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer, as if, yes. as if they just called you a Nazi, right? It's, it's yes. so clearly idiotic to them that you would ignore the science, ignore the data, and believe that the earth is flat. Yeah, and the only way they can signal that to people who agree with them is to wear a mask, which is weird when they're vaccinated but is clearly a useful status mm-hmm. symbol, a useful, uh, mm-hmm. useful flag. No, when I, when I go to the store, I put a mask on because I have not been vaccinated. So I put a mask on because that's, that's the policy that the store has. And I know I'm in the minority in terms of people who are wearing a mask, and but who vaccinated. isn't vaccinated. I am now in the minority, <laughs> which, is, which is funny. Right. As soon as they change the language from if you are not wearing a vax, if you are not wearing a vaccine, if you are not vaccinated, wear a mask. Too, we advise you to wear a mask or something that gives me some wiggle room, a little, a little wiggle room. I'm gonna be really thrilled to take it off. See, that's why I like uh, Maverick gas stations because they uh, recommend face coverings, and I take that recommendation under advisement. <laughs> yes, I've been. I'm going to a laundromat for a variety of lame reasons laundromats are when you've had a washer and dryer who uh, goes to a laundromat for epic and awesome reasons (laughs) man i don't know but i have become excited to go to the laundromat because the owner doesn't wear a mask nobody wears a mask there and so i just i feel comfortable taking off a mask it's a really lame joy to be like hey Hey, look at this. Now, of course, with the CDC change of guidelines, as you were saying, this is becoming more common. Because in your city, masks are still required, right? There's still a yes, city ordinance. Yes, in Dallas. Yeah. yeah. As, as you can imagine, Dallas is uh, very liberal relative to Texas and being a, a massive city. Yeah. Well, here in Utah, they recently opened it up, which has been fantastic for me. And then 
my business went ahead and changed their mind. So anyways, that's, that's neither here nor there. I'm not going <laughs> to gripe about that. Only a little. Only a little bit of griping. Uh, only a little. <laughs> but I think one of the things that, that is, you're talking about is that what I want to do, or one of the things I want to do in this episode, is to try and present a reasonable case for neither vaccinating nor masking. Oh, and, and before we get to that, Dan, which I totally agree with, I forgot to mention the other side, because you've got the one side of the the uh, the pro-vaccine side, and then the anti-vaccine side is equally passionate and equally respectful of the other side, and their arguments are largely inflammatory as well and are mostly based on risks of the vaccine. You know, they're very similar to anti-vaxxers who talk about these hidden risks, and and a lot of it comes down to conspiracy theories. There are a lot of conspiracy theories about the vaccine and about how dangerous it is, and that's the primary argument that I've at least heard against the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so, so really, when people are looking at the vaccine argument, what they see is you've got the scientific establishment on the left arguing against the right who has conspiracy theories about that scientific establishment and don't believe anything they're saying. And that's part of why there's, there's that respect problem is because there's no common ground there. Both sides fundamentally believe that the basic premises, the basic foundation of the other side's arguments is completely erroneous. It's complete garbage, basically. And as long as that's your right, belief... It's either stupid or I, either seriously stupid at a, le- at a level that is dangerous or dishonest, d- deliberately deceptive. And either way, there's no way to have a rational conversation, which is why... <laughs> having a conversation about the vaccine can be so frustrating and is which is one of the reasons we've put off talking about it is cuz we don't want to talk <laughs> about either of those things. We don't we don't want to answer the arguments from either side because we don't like either of them. Especially since we have a, a tendency in trying to find the reasonableness in both sides, right? Where, where are they reasonable and where are they not and to draw fine distinctions. Mm-hmm. When that doesn't serve either party's purposes, mm-hmm. Republicans want to discard the Democrats entirely and make them look as stupid as possible. And the reverse is also true. And so when what we're trying to do is navigate the actual information and where they are right and where their fears are justified and where they are wrong and where their fears are, are sheer conspiracy, this kind of nuance does neither party any favors in terms of winning elections and in terms of winning arguments. But that brings us to our side. You mentioned the term anti-vaxxer. I've noted that there's actually been a change in the definition. Anti-vaxxer used to mean you were against vaccines in general, based on some of the things you were saying, this idea that there are actually a lot of ways they harm people that are not documented and not reported and thus end up being uh, covered up, basically. A conspiracy, a legitimate conspiracy that hides the problems. That's not what anti-vaxxer is being used for in this discussion. At this point, an anti-vaxxer can be describing someone against mandatory vaccines. And that is a that is a very different group of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And those and so to throw them all into an anti-vaxxer description is is uh strange and misleading. No, when when people ask me if I've gotten the vaccine and I tell them no I haven't they ask me, am I an anti-vaxxer, in the same tone as if they asked me if I'm a flat earther. Mm-hmm. They're basically the same. You know, if you're an anti-vaxxer, you 
you are that group of people. There's no, there's no middle ground. But given that we neither want to mask nor take the vaccine, that puts us in a weird place that must lump us in with the conspiracy theorists, according to some people. Mm-hmm. And that's just not mm-hmm. the case. It's not the case. And so, as Brad was saying, we want to present our position, which is which is going to require more nuance than you're going to get from either of the two stereotypes. So before we get into the nuance, our position in a nutshell is this. We believe that COVID-19 is real. We believe that COVID-19 has killed people. And we believe that COVID-19 is a risk that needs to be considered. And based off of your age, your health conditions, and who you interact with, that risk is going to vary. And for a large number of people in the United States, we believe that risk to be low. Individually, for myself, I believe that risk to be extremely low, which is why I'm not concerned about contracting COVID-19. Yes. In addition, I'm also not concerned about getting the vaccine. But because my concern for getting COVID-19 is so low, that drastically reduces my incentive to get the vaccine so that little issues with the vaccine or medium issues with the vaccine that may not be such a big deal to someone who's very concerned about COVID-19 become much larger obstacles for me who's not very concerned about COVID-19. That's basically our argument. Which brings us to the strange conclusion, strange to some, that some people should vaccinate and others shouldn't. Yeah, that it's not a universal yes or no at all. It's going to be an individual decision based off of individual factors and individual preferences, which of course is our answer for most things because we believe that the world is made up of individual people and not society or any other lump sum you'd like to talk about. You know so much more about your life than any other person knows about your life. So much of the, the information that's required to make decisions in your life is particular to you. It's the kind of thing that I'm not going to know. Even if I know you well, I'm I'm only going to know a small fraction of it. And people in a faraway place aren't going to know any of the very particular information. They can can get a few general things, they can gather some data, and that's not going to be enough to assess the risk and things for you personally. Individual level of analysis is essential. So let me talk about the vaccine briefly first. The vaccine seems to be extremely effective. Now, and I think it is, I don't say seems to be as in, I suspect it's not. I don't mean that to be to to throw shade on it. It it is effective by the ethical measurements that we can make. Now, <laughs> there are better ways that we could measure it, but it would require a random sample of the population and forcing the, all of them to be exposed to COVID. Or it would require more extensive testing. You know, because because any test short of that, because what Dan's saying is if you took, you know, 10,000 people that were an accurate demographic sampling of the United States and then another 10,000 people and gave 10,000 the vaccine and then gave all 20,000 COVID-19, then you could get some very accurate data about how effective the vaccine was at stopping the 10,000 who got the vaccine from contracting COVID-19 versus the 10,000 who were just placebo. Now, obviously, the reason they didn't do that is because by doing that, they would literally be killing people by giving them the vaccine. Obviously, that's unethical, which means they have to 
just give the vaccine to people who are living their lives and then see what the effects are compared that with either a different control group or by comparing that vaccinated group with just the regular statistics on COVID-19 infection rates across the United States. But either way, there are some real flaws with, with conducting studies that way because viruses don't move equally. You know what I mean? As, as we've had the virus, there have been flare-ups in different areas, flare-ups in different populations, and any of those things could easily skew a study to make the vaccine seem a lot less or a lot more effective than it actually is, which is why you, you would need more time. You would need more time, more efforts, more studies to confirm what your original study showed. Now, obviously, with COVID-19 vaccine, there was a very strong incentive to get the vaccine out as soon as possible. So because of that, a lot of these studies have been rushed, which means, as Dan said, that right now we can say that this, the COVID-19 vaccines seem to be effective. The evidence so far suggests that they're effective, but we're still waiting on more concrete data. And as more people get the vaccine, we get more data. And as more and more time goes on, we'll have better and better data. Right. And, and that's not to say that, that a, a study that indicates that it has like a 95% effectiveness is going to actually find that it has a 5% effectiveness, right? There's probably uh, reasonable uh, margins of error in things that appear to be extremely effective now, given what we know are probably very effective. Now, as far as the side effects of and the risk of getting the vaccine itself goes, it seems to be really safe. Is there a small risk of side effects? Yes. Is there a very small risk of extremely adverse side effects that may kill you? Always. But it seems to be extremely tiny. Extremely tiny. Now, one of the things about these vaccines that is worth noting, where I think there is legitimate not reason for concern, but reason to consider and perhaps reason enough to delay when you get the vaccine, depending on your risk factors, which we'll get into in a minute. We do not have long-term tests on the effectiveness and the safety of these vaccines. It's possible with the complex human body that there are negative things that will take many years to play out that could cause serious harm to people who are getting the vaccine. That's possible, and we do not have data on that. We can't have data on that. It's been roughly a, what, a year and a half now that these things have been in development. Mm -hmm. You cannot track the long-term effects. Now, what you can say is the short-term effects are so minimal that it's unlikely to have long-term effects, right? But there's only so much you can know without actually seeing the long-term effects play out. And on that note, there is some reason to say, there could be risks to this that we don't yet know. That's not a conspiracy. That's simply the limitations of the data and the limitations of creating a vaccine this quickly and putting it out this quickly. And depending, that's one of the things that you should take into account when you're saying, should I be getting a vaccine? Obviously, immediately, if you're extremely old, this is not as important to you as if you're extremely young, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the long-term effects, not that important if you're going to live five years rather than 80 years. And that's, that's an immediate thing that, that favors giving the vaccines to old people over young people. What Dan's talking about is these vaccines were definitely pushed out quickly. You know, the CDC will tell you about how intensive the research was to make sure that they're safe. And obviously a lot of research, a lot of money was spent 
getting these vaccines yeah. out quickly, getting them tested, getting them researched to make sure that they were going to work and they weren't going to kill people. It merely means that it has some limitations. And obviously, there's a reason they did it quickly is because they're trying to, to stop a current epidemic. You know, an analogy that I've heard is that what would you do if there was a tiger loose on the street attacking people and you're right next to a home? You don't know what's in that home. But is it worth going in that into that home and closing the door to prevent that tiger from attacking you, even though you don't know what's in the house? And that's not actually a bad way of looking at the COVID-19 vaccine is, is what's behind door number one with COVID. You actually have a pretty good idea. What's behind door number two with the vaccine? You know, it's probably not COVID. <laughs> right, right. Is it less likely to kill you than that? Yeah, but in terms of long-term effects, there is less information in general. Is that cause to freak out? Probably not. Is that cause, as Dan said, to consider? Absolutely. And so then it gets into that personal discussion we talked about before about what exactly your risk factor is with COVID. Because if this tiger turns out for you personally, because the tiger discriminates to be the equivalent of a mouse, then maybe going through that door isn't as important. While if it turns out to be a pack of 12 tigers, then I don't care what's in that, what's in that house <laughs> right. I'm getting in. Right. Right. If you're going to die, if you stay out there, you go in the house. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you just hope for the best. You don't even worry about what's behind the door. And the people who are pro-vaccine talk about COVID in that language. They talk about COVID like if you get COVID, you're going to die. And the fact of the matter is, as everyone knows, that's obviously not true. And depending on your age, that number can change drastically. And we wanted to talk about that a little bit, about how radically different it is from person to person. Yes, because you could say, uh, you can calculate risk and say that it that the Pfizer vaccine is going to reduce the odds that you get COVID by 95%. That's the, the number that was thrown around initially. I don't know if they've adjusted that. Yeah, and in real world data, the numbers they're getting are closer to 90%, which is pretty darn similar, but a little bit less effective. Right, still, still excellent, yeah. but not quite 95%. But the question is not how much does it decrease your risk of getting COVID? The, the question that people are worried about is how much does it decrease your risk of actually dying or actually having serious health issues? And on that note, you have to not only take into account the effectiveness of it in preventing you from getting COVID, but the likelihood of you getting COVID and then the likelihood of that actually having a terrible effect on you. Because that's that's how you would measure the effectiveness of us. Now, there's there's two ways to think of risk this in this that the terms that they use in the studies is relative risk. That's your the risk related to one factor. So your relative risk from taking the vaccine of getting COVID is it it reduces the risk by 95%. That's in relative risk. But absolute risk, which is to say, what is the odds that this actually prevents you from being significantly harmed, that's a very different calculation. And the papers written on it estimate that it, the absolute risk change is about 0.7%, which is to say that in 0.7% of the people who get the vaccine- Actually going to change an outcome significantly. Actually going to change one of the outcomes that you're worried about. And the other thing to note with the vaccines is that vaccines target a spike protein. The spike protein is the part of the infection that infects. And the vaccine prevents infection by teaching your body to fight the spike protein. 
But the variants in COVID-19 that we're seeing around the world use different spike proteins. In at least some of the cases, I don't know if it's 100%, but at least many of the cases, there is a different spike protein, which is to say the vaccine that you are getting for this will not help you against those variants. And that's another another thing to consider. So Dan, I want to talk about that 0.7% for a little bit, because going from 95% to 0.7% is drastically different, right? <laughs> How do you go from 95% effective to 0.7% effective? And the answer is very simple. It's because the odds of you dying from COVID right now are pretty low. They're already pretty low. I think in the United States, uh, the COVID-19 mortality rate, if you get infected, is 1.8%. So 1.8% of anyone who gets COVID in the United States is going to die from it, which is still pretty high. You know, it's one in every 55 people is going to die if they get infected. But then you have to factor that in with, on average, about only one in every 10 people in the United States has actually been infected by COVID which means that now you're talking about one in every 550 people. Right, we're talking fractions of fractions. So now that number has gotten much smaller. And so now if you take that, okay, so so instead of it being 1.8%, now you divide that by 10, and that 1.8% becomes around 0.2%, which means that if you divide that by 10 again, using the 90% effectiveness as seen in the real world of these vaccines. And what you're talking about is a small percentage change in the odds of you actually surviving. Because the odds of you surviving are already so good that even doubling, tripling, you know, 10xing the odds of you surviving make a negligible difference. It's kind of like the lottery. If you have a one in one million chance of getting the lottery, or you have a one in 10 million chance of getting the lottery, it doesn't really matter which of those lottery pools you enter into, because either way, you're not going to win. You know what I mean? The odds of you winning are so slim that choosing between those lotteries doesn't really matter. And and that's what we're talking about with COVID. It's not quite as extreme as that, but in some ways it is. Depending on your age demographic, it can be that extreme. Right. That's the trick because we're talking absolute risk of 0.7%, which seems like quite a bit still. And you were saying the fatality rate is 1.8%, which seems like quite a bit still. Like if I have a one in a hundred chance of dying or two in a hundred chance of dying, basically. Yeah, that's scary. And then scary. as you said, wait, 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 we got we to gotta actually factor in the odds of you getting it in the first place, which is actually small which reduces it significantly. But then you can also factor in, because we have the data on this, your own age group, because it's a different threat to you based on your age and your own level of healthiness, because it's a different threat to you based on that. And these are not small things. This isn't the difference between oh, a factor huge. of one and two. It's massive differences. It's such massive differences that I truly believe there is a significant portion of the population that should not care about COVID-19 at all, except to the degree they might transmit it to someone who it could harm. And there's a massive part of the population who should be absolutely terrified of it because the fatality rate for them is so much higher. I don't know why this isn't common knowledge. Of all of the things you can know about COVID-19, its threat to people in your age category and relative health seems like it would be number one because then you have good information on the risk for you and can make decisions from there. 
And to illustrate this, we're just going to talk about age and gender and primarily focus on age. So we're not even going to look at any other risk factors. We're not going to look at any of that because each of those changes the odds significantly. But the, the biggest determiner is going to be age. So everyone knows, because everyone knows and everyone talks about the fact that the older you are, the more susceptible you are to COVID and the more dangerous it is. But they don't understand the scope of how much more dangerous it is and therefore how less dangerous it is for those who are younger. I didn't say that very well, but I hope you get my drift. You know, people talk about the 1.8% and they assume that they mean, okay, so if you're over 60, it's probably more like 3 or 4%. And when you're under 60, maybe it's more like 1%. That's not even close. That's not even close. No, it's not even close, right? I've asked people this because I, I think it's fun and, and people are not curious about this because they assume exactly what you're just saying. They assume it's pretty close. You know, COVID that is more dangerous to people who are older and they go, yes. And you go, well, how much more dangerous do you think it is? 50% more dangerous, two times, three times, four times, five times, 10 times. And you, you try and See if you can fish out a number from them, right? And of course, depending on what you start with, you're going to bias the sample. This isn't this isn't good data per se. But everyone I've talked to thinks it's about two or three times more dangerous. That is not even close. It's not even remotely close. The difference between somebody who is young, a child's risk, and somebody who's in their 80s is like 8,000 times the difference. Let's say I'm 17 years old and you are 85 years old, Dan. The chance that you're going to die from COVID is 8,700 times more likely than the chance that I'm going to die from COVID. Those are the numbers we're talking about. What does that translate to in actual numbers? Well, if you're between the ages of 25 and 29, which I am, that means that out of every 100,000 people who get infected, not just every 100,000 people, but those who get infected, 13 are going to die. 13 out of those hundred thousands. So we're talking 0.013%. So a tiny, tiny fraction of those who get infected who are my age are going to die. Yeah, not 1%, not 1.8%. No, way smaller than that. 0.013%. 13 out of 100,000. Versus if you're 80 plus, it is 8% of those who get infected are going to die, which comes out to 8,000 of every 100,000 who get infected. That's crazy different. If you're over 80 years old and you're considering the vaccine, it is like there's a tiger in the street and you're wondering about going into the house. Go into the house, open that <laughs> right. door up, make right. friends with whoever's there. Don't worry about it because that tiger is a very serious and a very real threat. People make the comparison with Skittles. You know, if you were told there's 100 Skittles and 1.8 of them were poisoned, would you eat those Skittles? That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is if you were moving into a town of 100,000 people and they tell you, hey, just so you know, 13 of those people died in the last year, you'd be like, yeah, 100,000 people is a full-size town. Things happen. Accidents happen and people die. That's well within my my risk comfort level, right? And for younger people, it's even it's even less than that. It gets it actually gets below 
the threat level of the flu uh, very rapidly, depending on which age group you're looking at. And when you go up, Dan, it doesn't even hit 1% until you're 65. So until you're at least 65 years old, it's not even 1%. So when they talk about the 1.8%, unless you're 65 or older, that's not the number you should be thinking about. You should be thinking right. about a tenth of a percent if you're in your 40s or a fraction of a 50th of a percent if you're in your 30s, you know, or a quarter of a percent if you're in your 50s or half a percent, you know, if you're in your low 60s until you're you're at least 70, you're not going to hit the numbers that the that the CDC talks about with the 1.8%. Until you're in your 70s, you're not going to be hitting that 1%. So everyone right now is operating as if their threat level was 1.8%, when in reality, only those who are over 70... And already have COVID. And yes, <laughs> and have COVID, because you got to add that 1 in 10 the infection odds of you rate. It, yes. yes. But even if you have COVID and you're wondering, hey, how scared should I be? If you're over 70, yes, look at that 1.8%. If you're over 80, look at that 8%. That's pretty scary. You know, that makes the vaccine seem very important. But if you're in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s even, your 20s, your 30s, it's a completely different ballpark. Yeah, some of you will note, uh, if you listen to our previous episodes on uh, often, some of them from many, many months ago at this point <laughs> on COVID-19, that these numbers are different. And that the risks at every level seem to have gone down, especially at the highest. The fatality rate for people in their 80s actually was higher before when we did it before. But that's because we've gotten better at treating COVID. And the death rate has actually decreased naturally mm -hmm. because we, we treat it more effectively, we catch it earlier, etc. But it's still a serious threat. 8% is still a serious threat. And as Brad was saying, if you were, if someone in their 80s asked me if they should get the vaccine, I would say yes. It doesn't appear to be much of a downside at all, even if your worst fears about the long-term effects of a vaccine were realized, because there's just not that long left for someone in their 80s anyway. And this is a very real and pressing threat, as Brad was saying. But what about somebody who, for whom the risk level is much lower? Especially if that person can look at that and say, as Brad was for himself, that it looks like it's about 0.0. One three percent, just a tiny, which is a tiny fraction of a percent. And then also note that he doesn't have any pre-existing conditions, and that he's relatively healthy. What is his risk really? It's actually probably even less than that. And that's if he gets it. Yeah. Then you gotta then you that's gotta times that by ten x again, <laughs> reduce it by ten again. Right. Which which puts us in a strange world where everyone is acting as if their risk is equal. I hear people talking about like, I don't want my kid to go to a grocery store now because people there who are unvaccinated might not be wearing their masks. And if they knew the relative risk for their kid, I don't think they would even give that a second thought because there are so many things that we deal with on a regular basis, including the flu for children, that poses a much greater risk. And that's, but because we are not distinguishing by risk factors and particularly age, this is, this is, if you're, if you're wondering, is this normal for a virus to be this particular about age? The answer is no. Yeah, it's like extremely drastic changes. 
Most things do become more lethal as you are older, but it also usually becomes more lethal as you are extremely young. Mm -hmm. That's not the case with COVID. And it's generally not in this way. I mean, we were looking at a we were looking at a graph as we were gathering data for this. And it was a graph of the risk, the relative risk, and uh, by age. And it looked like a linear graph. You know, it was, it was basically a straight, a straight line at a 45-degree angle going up this graph. Which is how people think of it. <laughs> Which is how people think of it. But it steadily increases as you get older, but it's steady. We're like, that's, that's weird. There's something wrong with this graph. And then you look on the left and you realize that each increment is a factor of 10. And so it's not going like your risk is X and then it's 2x, and then it's 3x. It's going, your risk is x, and then it's 10x, and then it's 100x, and then it's 1,000x. And each step was exponentially larger than the last one. And that's like, oh, that's why you can graph it in a straight line, because your increments are <laughs> exponential. Uh, but if you graph it honestly, it, look, it would look like an extremely I graph it honestly. I mean, they they weren't lying with their data. Well, but it is they misleading. were lying with the the visual. Yes, the visual. That, that is, is a dishonest misleading. graph. It's misleading. Yes. It is misleading. It would lead people to to assume false false things about their risk. But if you were to graph it, uh, Brad, you were describing it earlier. What it would look like? I described it as it would look like a ninety degree angle that had been rounded off which means you've got a slight incline slowly going up, then it would drastically go vertical as you reach that older age group before it goes much higher up. But because until you hit those older ages, the odds of you of you dying are very, very low. And that is not common knowledge. No, it's not common knowledge. It's extraordinarily low. Like it's extremely low. It's low enough that there are so many things that are more risky to you, even other sicknesses, that we have truly blown it out of proportion. Now, you do need to consider other things in your life because of the strange curve of this, right? You don't want to give this to somebody who's old mm -hmm. and you, you can act accordingly and they can act accordingly. But again, that is a very different problem than should everyone in the world wear masks all the time? Yeah. Should everyone in the world get a vaccine? Yeah, the, the questions are, are more nuanced. I feel like there should be a lot more room for understanding here because those people who have gotten the vaccine because they're worried about COVID should be able to look at the fact that number one, COVID, especially for most age groups, is not as dangerous as we thought it was. Number two, they now have gotten the vaccine, which is going to add another strong degree of protection. Which means that whether or not the person they're interacting with in the store has gotten the vaccine or is wearing a mask has become much less important. Whether or not the person next to you is wearing a mask is about one-tenth as important as it was before you got the vaccine, or one-twentieth, depending on whether or not it's 95 or 90% effective. You know what right. I mean? So you should, you should care about one-tenth as you used to, instead of caring twice as much as you used to, or the same as you used to, as a lot of people seem to be doing. On the other hand, the people who are freaking out about the vaccine are the same people who are saying, hey, COVID is not as scary as it seems, and it's okay to take a risk. Well, let those people who are getting the vaccine take a risk, because it's not a crazy risk, but it is a risk. Yeah. Let them take that risk. Yeah, let them take the risk of the effects of the vaccine. Yeah, It shouldn't be the end of the world 
for them to take those risks, just like you choose to take a risk to not get vaccinated and not wait, wear a mask. It's the same risk assessment, just choosing a different option. That's just fine. Because either way, I mean, for me personally, I'm not worried about getting COVID, but I'm not worried about the vaccine killing me either. They're both such low risk things for someone who's like me. For me personally, they're both so low risk that that if it weren't for all this hubbub, I wouldn't think about either. You know right. what I mean? If it weren't <laughs> right. for all this hubbub, if no, if there had been no news coverage, I never would have cared about COVID. It would not have bothered me. It would not have made it on my radar because because it shouldn't. Based off of my age group, based off of my health conditions, COVID-19, the risk of me getting it and the risk of me getting hospitalized or getting seriously sick or dying are so low that it changing my decisions doesn't make any sense. Yes, except to the degree that you are going to interact while you might be contagious. Which I included, which I included with that because I'm because I'm not. You know, I'm interacting right, with you're in a position, yes. With my two year old baby and my, you know, twenty something year old wife. Like we're all in fantastic Extremely age groups risk, yeah. with very few health conditions that might have any effect at all. Yeah. Yeah. And and that seems perfectly reasonable. And for you not to wear a mask is perfectly reasonable. And I'm in a similar case. It's not exactly the same. I'm a, I'm a little bit older, but not much. And, I, and again, I interact with little kids. I don't interact with any anybody elderly, at least didn't. Now all of them have the vaccine, and I'm starting to again. Um, and I think that's great that they got the vaccine. And mm-hmm. some of them ask me if I'm going to get the vaccine. Or rather, they ask, why haven't I got the vaccine? <laughs> <laughs> it's the way it's usually framed. And granted, I don't take an hour to explain it to them, <laughs> which is unfortunately what it requires in a lot of cases. Uh, usually, I just uh, avoid the the question. But that's because often these things are complicated and take a more nuanced approach than your average Republican or Democrat pundit can give you in, in a few minutes or and try and scare you into. One of the other news things that's been happening lately is that with the CDC change in guidelines... There's been a lot of talk about the gain-of-function research that may or may not have been happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and the related lab leak hypothesis that perhaps the origin of COVID-19 is actually a lab, not some animals. Now, if you haven't been following that, there have been a lot of developments in terms of public opinion and in terms of of what people think of it. That gain-of-function research was happening at that lab seems to me irrefutable. There are documents that are not even covert from 2015 and other times that suggest they were doing that. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. I'm not, I don't throw that out as an accusation of them doing wrong. Gain of function research is any research where you try and make a disease or a virus more dangerous. And there are a variety of reasons you would want to do that for good reasons. We do things like this in health all the time, frankly, Mm -hmm. not this exact thing. But we do things that are dangerous because in the long run, it will help us improve things, right? Yeah. There's some experimentation, there's some danger required to improve your technology and, and go forward. Yeah. I mean, labs contain and do research on lots of incredibly deadly viruses and bacteria on a regular basis. That's standard practice. Yes, and some people think that to make them more dangerous is just crazy, but it's but it's not. There are reasons that you would do it in order to determine how you can fight them. One of the ways they do it is they they basically 
they increase the pace at which evolution can occur and that adaptability occurs so that viruses and things become more effective quickly. And I think that is happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, people have been very, very quick to label the hypothesis that it came from a lab as a conspiracy, and they did that immediately. And there's obvious reasons for that, political and otherwise, to be careful about that accusation, especially initially. But it was always the best explanation. The idea that animals simply happen to be carrying a virus so perfectly suited to transmit rapidly among people, and that, that though that's never happened, it's abruptly happening. No one has ever had this from animals in a way that spread, but it's extremely contagious, and then it just tore through the population like fire is very, very unlikely. It looks more like something that had been evolved in a lab that had had time to adapt and adapt and adapt and adapt until eventually it became better suited for humans than it did for animals and to go from there. And that can happen in a lab when you're not intentionally trying to do that per se. You're not trying to create a weapon. You don't have to believe that this was a deliberate creation of a weapon to believe it escaped from a lab. But the lab is 17 miles away from where they found this. That alone, they're studying COVID-19 in a lab 17 miles from where there is an outbreak. And it's just coincidence? From the beginning, it should have been considered a legitimate hypothesis. And, and just to clarify, they weren't studying COVID-19. They were studying coronavirus in various forms. In various in forms, the, yeah. yes. Yeah, coronavirus in various forms and particularly gain-of-function type research there. Fauci denied gain-of-function research. There's a viral video of Rand Paul confronting him on it, and he, he keeps saying, we didn't fund gain-of-research things, and, and Rand Paul says, well, did you fund the lab? And he says, we didn't fund gain-of-research things. <laughs> and the, but the lab is conducting gain-of-research things. There seems to be some semantic game going on that politicians often play. In this case, it's Fauci playing the game about what words mean and what they don't mean. Yeah, because I think you can connect Fauci to the gain-of-function research that's happening in the Wuhan lab and him deliberately choosing to fund it, etc. That's a side story as far as I'm concerned. I think, he, I think you can connect that. Does that make him culpable? I don't know. But the point is, this probably escaped from a lab. They investigated the bats. Turned out that didn't work. They came up with a new theory about it coming from some different animal in this wet market there. They investigated that. It turned out not to be true. And they keep pulling up theories that are... Theories. I'm going to try and keep the, the scientific lingo. They keep having new hypothesis about where it came from, other than the lab, which they didn't want to consider, despite the fact that it was the best explanation for the data. That doesn't prove it, but it is the most likely hypothesis. And they've gone through several other hypotheses at this point. All of them have been falsified. The lab one remains. And finally, you get some 200 scientists who signed on to a letter, including some guy who who actually works with the Wuhan Institute in virology, and who would, may even have inside information, who signed on and said, this probably came from a lab. This is a viable hypothesis. We should look into this. And that's where it is today. That doesn't, again, that doesn't prove it came from a lab, but it is the most likely explanation. And it always has been. Yeah, and it doesn't, it doesn't prove that it's a big conspiracy theory that, that Fauci and- Or that China's trying to create biological weapons and Fauci is funding it, right? None of that has to be true. But the odds are that, that COVID-19 was created in a lab, and the odds are also high that that lab was that Wuhan Institute of Virology. My favorite related anecdote was that uh, they, when they announced how it came about through bats in the wet market, which- it's entirely untrue at this point. We know it's we know that's false. 
one of the, the heads at the Wuhan Institute of Virology posted on social media that they were so relieved to hear that's where it came from and that they hadn't been sleeping in days because they were so worried it came from their lab. Which is not a good sign for it not coming from the lab. It's, a, it's, it's evidence <laughs> right. that it could have come from the lab, that they were considering that. Right. And like many of the signs of it coming from a lab that were there initially, this one was quickly scrubbed and, and hidden because China, of course, didn't want to take the blame for this. Uh, understandably so. You don't want to be the country that unleashed this on the world. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line and the biggest takeaway from this episode is that, believe it or not, individuals are the ones who are the most qualified to make decisions for themselves. So as you're considering whether or not to get the vaccine, as you're interacting with those who are considering whether or not to get the vaccine, how to go about interacting in this, this new post-COVID-19 world that we're living in, remember that it's an individual decision and remember to look at the actual risk factors for you, not for the world at large, in order to make the best decisions. And remember to, uh, to give people the benefit of the doubt from where they're coming from, the, the factors that they have, and also the information that they have may not be the same information that you have. And I think we'd all be better off if we could give people the benefit of the doubt and give people a little bit of respect instead of the, the antagonism that we're continuing to see in regards to COVID-19 that we would really like to see people just take a break from. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 43 of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the social media apps as well as on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can reach out to us on our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can also find our Patreon account link there. And you can email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks and have a wonderful day. Until next time.